Hi, and thanks for downloading. I'm Ancient Blogger, and before we get into this podcast, I just want to point you to my website, ancientblogger.com, where you can find lots of ancient-themed content. There are also links to my Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channel there. Oh, and of course, I'm on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, so feel free to come and say hi. A Roman epitaph dating to the first century contains the lines, bathing, wine, and sex ruin our bodies, but bathing, wine and love make life worth living. I try and avoid generalisations, but I think I'm safe in saying that by the end of the first century AD, Romans saw bathing as an essential part of their lives. Bathhouses became the place to see and be seen, but these didn't just spring up from nowhere. In this podcast, I'll be looking into the history of bathing, from the Greek attitudes to it and how they incorporated it into their lives, to what bathing might have been like for a Roman in the first century AD. In a future podcast planned, I'll look at Roman bathing from a hygienic perspective and asking whether it was really that good for you. Just a final note, this podcast is clean in terms of swearing, but I do cover the more salacious elements to bathing, thanks mainly to Marshall, so just bear this in mind. We start then a distance from Rome, both in time and direction. An early example of bathing was found in the Palace of Knossos. It sits in what's known as the Queen's Bathroom. It is now a reconstructed clay bathtub, yet the original dated to around 1500 BC. As you might expect, this is a luxury item. It's impressive, but positions bathing in a tub as a privilege afforded to the aristocracy and nobles. In both the Iliad and Odyssey, Homer continues this trend, although Homer uses bathing and indeed bathtubs to comment on wider social practices and cultural norms. In the Iliad, the bath is truly something sumptuous. Both Odysseus and Diomedes enjoy a hot bath in their respective tubs after their famous night raid. Homer comments on their tubs as polished, perhaps reminding us that these were status items. They may not have been as extravagant and as, dare I say, Liberace-esque as the silver tubs Menelaus has in the Odyssey, but at the very least, this was glamping, Homeric style. Not all bathing was done in such grandeur. In Homer, bathing is split into cold water and hot water bathing. Cold water bathing is done prior to the actual bathing and to clean yourself. Both Odysseus and Diomedes had washed the sweat and grime from their bodies in the sea prior to their warm baths. Washing yourself prior to bathing might seem common sense, but with Homer there may be more to it. Bathing in tubs seems to carry a ritualistic motif. For example, Telemachus is bathed by Nestor's daughter when he arrives in Pylos. Indeed, the Odyssey features a number of incidents where characters are bathed. Odysseus is bathed by the Phaeacians, who even list their warm baths as a sign of their civility. Calypso also bathes Odysseus just prior to his departure from her island. It could be that the act of bathing or being bathed was used to recognise an equal or work as a gesture of acceptance. As a character moves from a stranger to recognised guest, the act of having them bathe acknowledges their new status. Bathing as a rite of passage can be found elsewhere. It was something a bride took before marrying it was something a bride took before marrying. 
At the other end of the spectrum, bodies were bathed in a funerary process. The bodies of both Patroclus and Hector are bathed prior to being burnt. In one of the most poignant moments in the Iliad, the bath being prepared was used to highlight the destabilising effects of warfare. Unaware that Hector had fallen to Achilles, Andromache, his wife, draws a bath for him, expecting his return. It's the collision of the domestic and the brutal realities of warfare. The dramatic irony is neatly framed by Homer's words when he refers to Hector's fate and Andromache's blissful ignorance. Poor wife, how removed from baths he was. Homer allows us to understand bathing and what it meant, but also describes what happened, and it might not be how you thought. After arriving and conquering the challenge of Circe, Odysseus is bathed by her. Homer describes Odysseus as sitting in a tub whilst water was poured over him. This tallies with other descriptions in Homer, where someone is bathed by another person, which itself suggests something was being done to them. In short, they weren't hopping into a tub full to the brim. The water would be added as you sat, and this is probably why bathing required someone else. If we took the references made to bathing in Homer, we could posit it was something a good host would do. A returning hero might be bathed as part of his reintroduction into the oikos or home. Thus Odysseus is bathed by his nurse, just after killing the suitors. Odysseus' return is largely undervalued in the Odyssey. It's a fascinating, as he comes across really quite out of touch, and in a podcast about bathing, I'd be doing a disservice to myself if I don't plug an earlier podcast I did on this called Odysseus Being Odd, Exile and Ruby Slippers. Viewed in this way, the fate of another returning Homeric hero, Agamemnon, can be understood as even more horrific. After arriving back in Argos, he takes a bath, which is where Clytemnestra, his wife, strikes. Not only is it a death unfit for a warrior, it's one which subverts a ritual we now more fully realise Little wonder the act was considered so infamous. Agamemnon's fate is the cornerstone of Aeschylus' masterpiece, the Oresteia, and by the time it was performed in Athens in the 5th century BC, bathing had become something available to the common citizen. Greek bath design isn't really easy to recreate, given the lack of source material and surviving finds, but enough can be gleaned which allows us a fair crack at reconstructing rubber-ducky time with Socrates and co. Greek baths were private, but those available to Athenians followed a similar building design, which was a circular building. The reason for this was the arrangement of the hip baths around the room, which faced inwards. Niches or cubby holes above the baths would have stored the customer's clothing. In the middle of the room stood the basin, which contained the water, most likely heated from below. In Aristophanes' Lysistrata, a comment is made about the logs the men carry being for the baths, Homer's description of bathing seems to carry across into the classical period. As we can imagine, those sat in their hip baths, chatting to each other and having warm water poured over them by attendants, workers or slaves. In his work Characters, Theophrastus, a 4th century BC writer, has one character act rude in the baths by pouring the water over himself and then insulting the bath owner. Worse still for the 4th century comic Antiphanes, who complained of being turned into boiled meat at the baths. Perhaps quality control on the hot-cold-water ratio mixing was itself a bit of a risk. Sources suggest that baths were common in homes, which isn't that surprising given that it is a simple setup. The private baths, as I have just described, would have charged what was most likely a nominal fee, and it's argued that women even had their own baths. The only Athenian baths we know of from the classical period existed outside the city walls 
and this might give a clue as to how they were perceived. One person who certainly backs the view that warm bathing in such establishments was to be avoided was Aristophanes. In his play Clouds, baths are a corrupting influence on the young. They tempt the men away from exercise and other more virtuous activities. More terrifyingly for a Greek audience, they emasculate the men who take them. Aristophanes goes with a you youngsters don't know your born angle, which is something chiming with the modern day. As ever, Aristophanes is relevant. This view might simply have been Aristophanes' own, yet remember the clouds was entered into a competition, so it's probable that this idea or opinion resonated with the audience in some way. Whilst hot water bathing was considered a tad edgy, good old-fashioned cold water bathing sat in contrast, and was often to be found in palestras where young men would wrestle boxing exercise. At Olympia, the earliest bathing facilities can be dated to the first part of the 5th century BC. The baths were essentially a building, 20 metres by 4, which had a basin in the middle of it. Athletes would use this to wash themselves with the cold water, and if they wanted something a bit larger, there was what we might consider a swimming pool, 24 metres by 16, with steps down from each side, and roughly 1.6 metres deep. It wasn't till later that hip baths with a heated basin were offered there, and presumably these were for officials or VIPs. Vases, dating to the classical period, and even before it, depict cold water bathing. Usually a couple of figures stand around the central basin, and these can either be men or women. One vase I've even seen depicts figures showering with the water swirling around their legs. Again, we'll have to speculate given the paucity of evidence, but I think we can sketch out what bathing in Athens might have been like in and around the classical period. Firstly, there were baths, albeit private, and considered a tad dubious. It's more than likely individual homes would have had these given there wasn't much needed in the, in the way of specific technology. You just needed a tub and a vessel to heat water in. The advantages the baths had outside of your home was that you could chat and meet others. So hot bathing is something which early on has a social element fastened to it. And the idea of men sat around gossiping is one of the reasons Aristophanes doesn't approve of it. Secondly, both men and women bathed. Aristophanes' Lysistrata references bathing several times and it doesn't seem to be ring-fenced as a male-only activity. Plus, there are the vase descriptions. Alongside this, it would seem really quite weird if women didn't bathe. Finally, the very existence of bathing establishments could mean that this was now a standalone leisure activity. It wasn't tied to a process or ritual, but it could be done simply for the sake of it. Yet were you to pluck an average Roman from the 1st century AD and take him or her to a Greek bath, I would imagine there would be little, little for them to recognise as bathing as they understood it. The relationship between Greek and later Roman bathing is debated, not necessarily in terms of whether Greece influenced Rome, but to what extent. We'll now move from Athens and to the Hellenistic period and to a place called Gortis. Gortis is located in Arcadia, and this bathing facility contained elements which we will become far more familiar with. There was a hypercourse present which seemed to have warmed sections of the rooms there. The two other rooms remain. One was what might have been a sweat room, as well as a central room, which was possibly where you changed. The hypercourse dates to the middle of the 3rd century BC, and it's very important, simply because hypercourse are generally thought of as a purely Roman invention. In some ways they are, as Roman hypercourse differ from the Greek ones. It's probably easier for me to explain. A hypercourse was a way of heating the floors and even the walls. The Roman version was to raise the floor of the room using small stacks of material, 
This created a gap in which hot gas and air from a furnace could be funneled. You could repeat this in a wall by simply having a hollow space. Greek hypercourse operated with a similar principle in mind, but a more limited way. Rather than raising the floor, a trench would be dunk with a furnace at one end. The trench would then be covered by flooring. Given that the trenches were quite narrow, it restricted the heating of the floor to the area immediately above it and possibly just to the sides. At Gortis, the hypercourse trench ran under a couple of the rooms. It must have been quite effective, but not as complete as the later Roman hypercourse. Gortis feeds into a wider debate. How much did the Greek paths influence the later Roman ones? You could argue that here is a basic design which the Romans improved upon, and therefore it gives something of a direct line to what the Romans enjoyed later on. Yet the counter to this pivots on the idea of not only technology, but context. There's a fair amount of difference between the Roman and Greek hypercourse. It does a disservice to see the Greek one as approaching something lesser, simply because the Roman version offered more. If anything, the Greek version fulfilled the criteria which it needed, and here's where context needs to come in. Gortis was set in a sanctuary to Asclepius. These baths weren't a social hub, they were aimed at recuperation. I should mention at this point that warm bathing became something the Greeks identified as aiding healing and recovery. This affords them a different set of priorities, which the technology serve well enough. Perhaps any sections of the room needed to be heated. A furnace required fuel, so this type of hypercourse might have been a really good option, and we could suggest that there weren't the demands for a different type of bath, and therefore a different type of hypercourse at this time. From what survives, we can see changes elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Sicily long had a strong Greek influence to it, and doubtless the baths were imported from Greece. In the 3rd century BC, baths were built at the side of Morgantina in East Central Sicily, and these indicate that tastes had started to make those types of demands I mentioned just a minute ago. The North Baths at Morgantina date to the 3rd century BC. They are strongly associated with the influence of Syracuse under Hero II. Along with a new architectural style, the baths featured added facilities, and were set out in a way which indicated a flow or suggested movement from each room to another. This element to bathing, that there was a prescribed order, is attached to, a Ro to Roman attitudes to bathing, and I'll be debating and picking up on this a bit later on. The standard Greek bath existed. There was a circular room with the hip baths facing inwards, but it also had a heated communal pool, the first that we know about. The pool was heated using water piped from a boiler, a system which the Romans later termed testudo. I'm wary of leaving you with a particular image in your mind when I say pool. In reality, it was a sunken bath, which was wide enough to accommodate around 11 people if they sat side to side, as if you would do in a row of chairs. It wasn't a large pool, allowing you to freely mix with other bathers, but presumably this wasn't something required at the time. We are now only a hundred or so years away from the earliest Roman baths we have, the Stabian baths in Pompeii. Some scholars, like Professor Fagan, who is well worth reading on this subject, places the birth of Roman baths in Magna Graecia. Professor Fagan notes that this region had a practice of bathing in the numerous naturally heated pools and vents there, and that the earliest surviving baths were located there, and that the economic and social drivers were also present for a development in technology. That is to say, plenty of rich folk who could afford to have new ideas sold to them. 
As mentioned, the Stabian Baths in Pompeii are the oldest Roman baths still standing, and its construction dates to around 140 BC. Pompeii at this time wasn't strictly Roman, though obviously it came to be, and it was definitely influenced by Rome. The baths are a great starting point, because what we observe here are traits which come to form much of what we later see as Roman bathing. To start with, let's look at the basic setup. We tend to use the term bath or baths, and the danger here is that you think purely of a bathtub. In reality, Roman baths were a suite of rooms which formed a complex. As we'll see, these became grander and featured more and more elements to them. The baths of Domitian even had libraries. But I'm in danger of getting ahead of myself here. So let's have a virtual tour of the Stabian Baths. The Stabian Baths were enclosed. There were two entrances to them. Once inside, the main feature was a central palaestra, an exercise ground which had colonnades on three of its sides. It even had a pool measuring 13 metres by 8 and 1.5 metres deep. One room in the southwest corner is thought to have been where you could oil yourself in preparation for exercise or get changed for the pool. In the southeast corner was an apoditarium or changing room, and this had a feature which traditionally marks it out as such the niches in the walls for storing your clothes. From here, you could make your way to the tepidarium, which was a mildly heated room, or to the frigidarium, where the cold plunge pool was. The tepidarium in the Stabian Baths featured, well, a bath, which was unusual. It's something which will become increasingly apparent, but much of bathing was more about sweating than being submerged in water. The next room on our list is the caldarium, where you'd be sure to sweat it out. And at Stabian Baths, caldarium even featured a heated pool, which might accommodate eight bathers. The hypercaust would have made the floor very hot. Temperatures in the mid 40 degrees centigrade are thought to have been achievable. The very hot floor of the caldarium had a macabre use, as the slaves of one Lasius Macedo were to demonstrate. Having attacked their owner in the caldarium at his villa, they threw him on it to see if he was dead or merely playing dead. As it turned out, he was a mix, not dead, but near enough not to react. Lasius recovered and survived for a few days before dying, enough from what Pliny tells us to see his revenge on the slaves in question. In the Stabian Baths, bathers were issued with wooden clogs for the caldarium. I suppose it's a similar thing when you wear flip-flops on the hot sands of a beach. One picture I came across reports to show the foot of a victim from the eruption of Vesuvius with this wooden clog or part of it still attached. If that's the case, then this is surely the most literal version I've heard of the idiom out of the frying pan and into the fire. Earlier, I mentioned the two entrances for the Stabian Baths. This was because both men and women bathed here. Segregation occurred through the layout, but most men and women had their own versions of the same rooms, or near enough. The issue of women using the baths is one which is difficult to answer, and in many ways a simple answer of yes they did or no they didn't would attract raised eyebrows for its simplicity. Baths varied in terms of size and what they aimed to offer. It was probably up to the owner whether women were allowed, and if so, whether mixing occurred, and if so, how. At the Stabian Baths, segregation was made possible by the layout. But we have evidence that segregation was enforced by having time set aside for male-only and female-only bathing in later baths elsewhere. The 1st century AD poet Marshall writes of his experiences in Rome with women bathers, which are often none too pleasant. Marshall's acid tongue is used to great effect, 
But here he doesn't mention that there are women in the baths as being the issue. It's just the type of women. Marshall would certainly be one to block on Twitter. In the 2nd century AD, Hadrian had to issue an edict banning mixed bathing altogether. In short, mixed bathing happened, but the extent and how varied. The changing room, exercise area, tepidarium, caldarium and frigidarium were the basic components of any baths. And you might imagine how these could be arranged in different layouts depending on what space was available. I mentioned earlier there is a tendency to see the baths as having a prescribed order to them. As we have seen, the baths varied by layout, size and quality of facilities. Perhaps you were going to the baths to exercise and then just have a quick dip in the frigidarium. Or you wanted to sit in the tepidarium and gossip. I prefer to side with Professor Mary Beard, who argued that the strict order of bathing as mentioned by some sources, may not be as strongly adhered to as we think it was. Not quite running backwards around Ikea, but near enough. Given the numbers of baths which opened in the imperial period at Rome, it's no surprise that the quality of the baths and their subsequent reputations varied greatly. Marshall applauds the baths of Claudius Etruscus, the freedman of the Emperor Claudius, whilst it's damning about those of Lupus. The popularity of a bath might be ephemeral. In a letter, Seneca comments how a popular bath might lose its custom the minute a newer one opened round the corner, particularly if it had some sort of novel facility. Perhaps like modern-day calves or bars, the baths of Rome gained new owners or made over and changed in order to appeal to new or existing custom. It seems like it was quite competitive. The baths of Imperial Rome certainly took the established set of facilities and expanded on it. Baths might have parks and gardens attached to them. Those of Domitian, as mentioned, even had libraries. These were more a social hub, attracting all levels of society. The actual bathing or sweating became less of a consideration. Professor Fagan noted that 33% of the total area of early baths were heated, and later baths of similar size, this dropped to 21 to 29%. In the massive imperial baths of Rome, the heated area only made up for 18%. The baths I have mentioned thus far are the public ones, which were built for any citizen and charged a tiny amount for entry, with children admitted free. There are also private baths which could vary in what they offered, and these seem to have tried to compete with the grander imperial baths in different ways. In a letter to Lucius, Seneca, the famous 1st century AD philosopher and tutor to Nero, moaned about living near to the baths. With my best amateur dramatic voice, I'll read it out for you. So, picture to yourself the assortment of sounds which are strong enough to make me hate my very powers of hearing. When your strenuous gentleman, for example, is exercising himself by flourishing leaden weights, when he is working hard or pretends to be working hard, I can hear him grunt, and whenever he releases imprisoned breath, I can hear him panting in wheezy and high-pitched tones. Or perhaps I'll notice some lazy fellow content with a cheap rubdown, and hear the crack of a pummeling hand on his shoulder varying in sound according as the hand is laid on flat or hollow. Then, perhaps a professional comes along shouting out the score. That's the finishing touch. Add to this the arresting of an occasional roister or pickpocket, the racket of the man who always likes to hear his own voice in the bathroom, or the enthusiast who plunges into the swimming tank with unconscionable noise and splashing. Besides all of whose voices, if nothing else, or a good, imagine the hair plucker with his penetrating shrill voice. 
for purposes of advertisement, continually giving it vent and never holding his tongue, except when he is plucking the armpits and making his victim yell instead. Then, the cake seller with his varied cries, the sausageman, the confectioner, and all the vendors of food hawking their wares, each with his own distinctive intonation. Here, Seneca seems to be commenting on a large public bath in Rome, given the variety of goings-on, including theft, which occurred in great deal in the apoditarium, which is no surprise when you think about people leaving their items, their clothes, walking sticks, all sorts, in those little niches. Slaves, in fact, often stood guard over their master's clothes and belongings. And there's even reference to the additional treatments you might get. For example, if a barber was there practising their trade, which included hair plucking, something Julius Caesar was notorious for. Manscaping is nothing new. There's also a fair mention of food vendors. Baths usually had shops running outside of them, facing outwards. And possibly vendors could set up shop inside. According to Marshall, Amelius took lettuce, eggs and anchovies with him into the bars. It's not clear where the food was eaten, but perhaps food was eaten while sitting around the palaestra or on a bench within the complex. It's also possible it was eaten whilst in the rooms, even in one of the heated pools, which sounds awful. Graffito in the baths at Herculaneum revealed that Apelles had enjoyed lunch with Dexter in them, and there was a crude price list painted on a wall. As has been suggested, eating, like mixed bathing, was simply something which could vary depending on the establishment you're in, though it's worth noting that food vendors don't seem to have existed in imperial baths. If you weren't eating, the baths offered somewhere to get a meal ticket. It seems that individuals would hang out at the baths, hoping to get invited to dinner. It was at the baths that Marshall noted Cotter would choose his dinner guests, perhaps choosing them based on looks though at least he could afford to be choosy, because it seemed Marshall himself suffered from being ignored by a certain Dento, who refused his dinner invites and ignored him at the baths, though Marshall is at least partially successful elsewhere, as he meets his dinner guests around the eighth hour, that's late afternoon in the baths. The late afternoon is noted as generally being the best time to go to the baths. Earlier, it's even suggested that the sick, or dare I say even the women, would go to the baths. Though they were generally occupied by what we might term the lower classes, the odd senator or noble would often tend the baths. Being seen and being available was crucial to anyone looking to develop or maintain a political career in Rome, and bathing with the common folk could be a masterstroke. After all, the baths were used politically. Days of free bathing were bought, and more expensive baths were built by those looking to make a name for themselves. The baths were a social hub, where Tongillus, a successful lawyer might appear with what Juvenal called his rabble of hangers-on. To what extent the nobility bathed that much with the common folk is hard to gauge. Suetonus has it that Titus appeared in the baths of his own name. Even if they did attend, the rich were like to ensure you knew who they were exactly. They might have a large contingent of slaves or attendants to keep the more ordinary folk away. Added this would be the luxurious bath instruments they take with them, such as strigils, which would be used to scrape off sweat. The aforementioned Tongillus even had a rhino horn oil flask. At the baths, you could meet a senator, get legal advice, or as a lawyer, a nice legal case, a rub down, or simply a dinner invite. If you could eat at the baths, you could certainly drink, and as we know the Romans were fond of a drink or ten, it's possible this was brought into the baths or bought there. But several writers comment on the fashion for drinking in the baths, and it's usually with awful outcomes. 
The drinking culture at the baths seems to be split into those who drank there or those who used the heat of the baths to build up a real thirst. Juvenal tells us of a wife who would exercise and sweat it all out in the baths in order to build up a three-gallon thirst. She'd then host a meal. Spoiler alert, it does not go well. Marshall recounts the tale of Aper, someone who lived a frugal life and until an inheritance came through and now never leaves the bath sober. Imbibing whilst bathing, or at least in the bath complex, is something commented on by both Seneca and Quintilian. So we've looked at food and drinking in the baths, and you can probably guess that sex was also a feature there as well. The suburban baths of Pompeii feature a number of scenes depicting sexual activity. No rhino horns, but a lot of everything else, and these featured in the apoditarium or changing room. As Professor Mary Beard notes in her book on Pompeii, these may be linked to the building as a whole, as Graffito, near one of the entrances on the upper floor, seems to have advertised the services of Attice or Attice. Prostitution was common enough in Rome and antiquity in general, so it's hardly a huge leap of the imagination to think of male or female attendants in such a bath who'd also double up as sex workers in separate room or rooms. But this views sex purely in commercial terms. Ovid comments in his Amores that young lovers met at the bars, and there were certainly enough options in terms of places within them for people like that to meet. Again, the larger baths might not have given much opportunity for a liaison. People have been hooking up since the year dot, and I can imagine the baths simply offered another landscape for this to happen. I should also add that relations between men would obviously have occurred here. In one epigram, Marshall writes of someone he goes to the bath with who is certainly interested in checking out the options there, and it's suggested that Cotter would invite his dinner guests based on how attractive he found them, and this would have been largely male. But it wasn't just men checking out men for one reason alone. The amount of nudity at the baths, though not unfamiliar, ensure that insecurities ran amok. Juvenal harumps at a particularly well-endowed chap, and Marshall often writes of the men at the baths who weren't afraid to let it all hang out. In one instance, a chap wore a sheath to cover his manhood, and obviously Marshall comments on its size. Later, when exercising, the sheath falls off, revealing, well, I don't need to spell it out, because Marshall is duly obliged. Needless to say, what went on at the baths outraged a fair number of commentators. Cicero and Pliny both pined for the days where baths were simple and lacked the extravagance of their modern day. This plays into the common Roman trope which we hear even today, wherein the older times were simply better. Apart from the sex, the drinking and the nudity, why were the baths so popular and what, what caused this love of bathing to grow? It was by no means an overnight conversion to bathing by Rome, but Romans of the early imperial period certainly loved their bathing. We again turn to Professor Fagan, who admits that there wasn't a definitive reason, but perhaps several working in tandem. The link to good health certainly allowed for initial traction and an interest in the baths, but by the early imperial period, the baths were more of a social and political hub than somewhere you went because you wanted to get better. Although, as I'll be finding out in a later planned podcast, this certainly happened as well. As we have seen, the baths could offer anything you wanted, within reason, and it was one of the few places where citizens could mix and socialise with some pretense at equality. Even if we aren't sure exactly 
what caused the Romans to fall in love with it. Bathing is fantastic for us because it allows us to see how Roman society functioned. It gives us a, another way of looking at those kind of relationships which occurred there. We can find references to most human behaviour conducted within them. And this is readily reported back to us. The indiscretions, the social expectations, the normal human experiences all feature here. As much as the big structures, speeches and texts from antiquity, I've always been fascinated by the day-to-day -day detail. So reading that X was avoiding Y in the bars, or that someone was drinking away their inheritance, gives me an insight I wouldn't otherwise have. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I make the plea for a nice review on iTunes if you're listening to it on that platform. Obviously, if you've liked it. It really does help me getting some more listeners. There's more of this sort of stuff, as I've mentioned, on my website, ancientblogger.com, where I have articles and other pieces, as well as my Facebook, Instagram and YouTube content there. And again, I'm on Twitter, ancientblogger. It would be great to hear from you, particularly if you like this podcast. Until the next time, stay safe and keep well. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!